What's stopping you from becoming a Catholic? Why can't women become priests? What's stopping you? I don't understand why I have to earn salvation. What's stopping you? Why do I need to confess my sins to a priest? What's stopping you? This is Call to Communion with Dr. David Anders on the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. Hey everybody, welcome again to the Friday edition of Call to Communion here on EWTN. It's the program for our non-Catholic brothers and sisters. Today we're not going to be taking your phone calls because we have a special mailbag edition cooked up for you. We'll be answering questions that have come in uh, via email over the past couple of weeks. And uh, that's what we're going to be doing for the next hour or so. That'll be uh, Charles Beery, our producer, me, Tom Price, and Dr. David Anders. Tom, how are you today? Doing very well. How are you, my friend? Oh, you know, I'm, I'm uh, doing decent. Thank you. I'm glad to hear that. We have an interesting question here from Sarah. Don't believe this has ever come up before. Sarah says, hello, I am a high church Anglican, prayerfully considering Catholicism. My primary hang-up is Petrine supremacy. Can you please explain why the Pope is the vicar of Christ and not just first among equals, like the Orthodox and some high church Anglicans believe? What is the historical basis for this claim? Thanks, Sarah. Yeah, thanks, Sarah. I appreciate the question. So exegetically, the primary argument for the Petrine ministry is the teaching of Jesus in the Gospel of Matthew chapter 16 when he identifies, we changes Peter's name from Simon to Peter. Peter means the rock and uh, says, uh, we'll give to you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth is bound in heaven, whatever you loose on earth is loosed in heaven. And so there's three metaphors there that indicate Peter's unique importance. First of all, you know, the rock is a foundation of stability and unity. Mm-hmm. Um, this The only place in the New Testament where this idea of the power of the keys is mentioned, and it's a reference to Isaiah 22 when we find out that the keys to office are a sign of executive authority in the Davidic kingdom. David has a major domo of his house to whom he has entrusted the keys. That's the power to admit, to exclude into the king's presence. And then the, the metaphor of binding and loosing comes from the rabbinical tradition and refers primarily to declaring things clean or unclean and uh, also to admitting and excluding. And And so that, that, uh, uh, that came into play in a big way in the Council of Jerusalem when there was a debate on whether or not the Gentiles were clean, as it were. And Peter's testimony to the effect, to the, to the effect that, that they were, because they'd been purified by faith in Christ, was determinative for the decision of the council and the course of the Christian faith. And so um, that's, uh, that's unique. Now, in the rest of the Gospels, there, we, see, we continue to find a unique role for St. Peter. He is the one who has been entrusted with the strengthening of the brethren and the feeding of the sheep. Mm-hmm. And so in history, the way that has been lived out uh, is that uh, the bishops of Rome understand themselves to be the successors to St. Peter's unique mission, and and their claims to authority have always been based on that position. It's not because it's the seat of the empire, uh, but their connection to Peter. And you can find testimony from the East and the West, Latin, Greek, Syriac, Arabian, Chaldean, uh, reaffirming that it is with reference to the See of Peter that the universal church must... Uh, must test its doctrines and its practices. And you can find it in the second century in writers like Tertullian and Irenaeus, but you can find it all through late antiquity. And, and it, see, Rome has been a point of doctrinal unity for the Christian faith uh, ever since. Uh, now, you know, people object because uh, the Pope has at times, and sometimes frequently, 
misused his authority and maybe acted in unseemly ways and done all kinds of imprudent things. And we've had immoral popes and foolish popes and, and all the rest of it. Um, and so that, you know, is mitigated somewhat in Catholic teaching by mm-hmm. the idea that a man's ultimate authority is to his conscience. So if the pope ever were to command you, for example, to do something contrary to conscience, you have a duty to obey conscience first and the pope second. That's what Newman famously argued, and it's good Catholic teaching, a well-informed conscience, of course. Yeah, yeah. Um, and, uh, uh, but from my point of view as a convert myself, when I look at the history of the papacy and I see all kinds of ups and downs and ins and outs, I, I conclude at the end of the day, the papacy's fundamental job description is to maintain the dogma of the faith, unity of the faith through time, and not necessarily, you know, to, to make prudent choices and good policy decisions and all the rest of it. And, and, and it's basically fulfilled its job description. I mean, there is a coherent thing that it is called to be Catholic that has perdured throughout the world and has functioned as a seat of unity uh, for all those in union with the Pope and in ways that, say, you know, the Anglican or the Orthodox tradition, for all of the good that they have done in the world, has, has failed to realize I mean, you know, by by comparison, no. say world orthodoxy just has no effective way for concerted collective action on any issue. And every attempt they make flounders because there's one body or another that fails to participate. Sure. Same thing goes on in world Anglicanism, right? All, but in spite of all the commonalities they may have in terms of tradition or ethos, um, they, uh, they can't get on the same page. Yeah. Right? And it's because there isn't a single voice of authority with divine uh, c- commission that can uh, settle those points of controversy. Sarah, thank you for your email. While we're on the subject of uh, all things Anglican, here's one from Aaron. Dr. Anders, if a Catholic was to see a man in clerical garb on the street and ask him to hear their confession, and the man was not a Catholic priest but rather an Anglican priest, would the absolution be valid since the Catholic confessed in good faith not knowing that priest wasn't Catholic? I'm inclined to say no, but would appreciate your take. Yeah, okay, so the, the absolution would not be valid, to be sure it would not be valid, because the Anglican priest does not have valid orders. He's not a validly ordained priest at all, and so he wouldn't have the power to absolve sin. Um, that doesn't mean that God might not forgive that person's sin in some extra-sacramental way. Hmm. So there's always the option open to a soul to make an act of perfect contrition and re- be reconciled to God. And so... Uh, it's entirely possible that a deeply contrite soul could make a confession in good faith, and the sacrament itself would be—well, there wouldn't really be a sacrament, but the pseudo-sacrament would be the occasion, but not the cause of that reconciliation. Okay. Because be the soul and God doing yeah. business, sure. you know, with this Anglican guy as a witness— um, but uh, but it wouldn't be an absolution granted through the sacrament by the Anglican priest. Aaron, we hope that is helpful for you. Thank you so much for your email. We're doing a special mailbag edition of Call to Communion here on EWTN Radio today. And if you would like to send us an email for a future show, here is the address, ctc at ewtn.com, ctc at ewtn.com. But you know, if there are any Anglican priests listening, yes, don't, don't do that. <laughs> Don't do that. Don't do let, that. Let people know, you know, I am an Anglican priest. Yeah, and a fess ca- up. And a well-formed Catholic will go, oh, 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 okay. Thanks. Thanks anyway, bud. Walk know. on his merry right, way. Exactly. Very good. Hey, it's called to Communion here on EWTN. We'll continue with this special mailbag edition of our program in just a moment. Do stay with us.
It's called a communion on this Friday afternoon as we begin this uh, first short week of Lent here on EWTM. We're doing a mailbag edition of our program, so no calls, please. Uh, we will be taking calls again on Monday. Right now, here's a question from Will in Tallahassee, Alabama. Hi, Dr. Anders. I was wondering, does the Catholic understanding of the soul as the thing that makes the body alive, does that mean that if a future AI achieves the same kind of rational consciousness consciousness that we have, it would also have an eternal soul? What implications would this have as far as how the church should minister to such a soul if it could exist? Thank you, Will in Tallahassee, Alabama. Yeah, thanks. I think it might be Tallahassee. Tallahassee. I think it might be Tallahassee. Oh, thank you. Yeah, it's I appreciate near Montgomery. Yeah. All and right. I, after you asked me that the other day, I realized, oh, I actually do know somebody. I know a priest Tallahassee. in Tallahassee. Very yeah. good. Um, so, uh, yeah, that's not possible. So an AI can't have the same kind of consciousness as a human. Can't. It's impossible, okay. right? Because an AI isn't a biological organism that is, that is flesh and spirit. Mm-hmm. Won't have the same sort of situation in space and time won't have the the uh the same uh perspective on on th- what's relevant mm-hmm. uh to its own flourishing or to the flourishing of the common good i mean it won't have the kind of embodied cognition that is intrinsic to the human animal so w- whatever an ai might achieve that could be an analog to that it won't be human consciousness it might be something that we might infelicitously call AI consciousness, Uh um, but it won't be human consciousness. Okay. Well, there you go. And uh, thanks so much, uh, Will in Tallahassee, correct? All right. Tallahassee. Very good. Here's one now from Luke in La Crosse, Wisconsin, normally listening on Sirius XM. Dear Dr. Anders, I was an Eastern Catholic for a short time and now Orthodox for 24 years this Pasha, or Easter. Anyway, I'd like to hear your thoughts on the Catholic view of Lord Jesus's death. Did he die only physically or both spiritually and physically? I've heard some Protestants being indignant about this and his descent into hell, but I haven't read anything in the Fathers on it yet. The scriptures seem to indicate to me that he was separated from the Father for at least long enough to die physically. Thank you for your thoughts on this. Luke in La Crosse, Wisconsin. Yeah, thanks, Luke. So when you say die spiritually, I think what you're referring to is the descent into hell. The context of the question, larger context, makes me think that that's what you're talking about. So does the Catholic faith confess the descent into hell? The answer to that question would be yes. But would we understand that to mean that he was separated from the Father? Well, uh, he certainly is not separated from his own divinity, Right. I mean, right, the, the right. Catholic teaching is, is that, that, that uh, in fact, that Christ is a God-man, and he's uh, the, the body, blood, soul, and divinity of Jesus go together, and the, we have a technical term for that called concomitance, meaning wherever you have the body and the blood, you have the soul and divinity, um, except in the physical death, when, of course, the body and blood are separated from the s- human soul of Christ, uh-huh. but through the hypostatic union, the divinity is hypostatically united to the soul of Christ. I mean, that's 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 what uh, uh, we hold, like the Orthodox, against the Apollinarians that teach that Jesus didn't have a human soul. That's the Apollinarian position. The Orthodox and the Catholics confess, no, with Nazianzus, whatever he didn't assume is not healed, so he has a human soul. And because the hypostatic union is a perfect union of the natures uh, of the in the person, 
the divinity is hypostatically united to the soul. So if Christ's soul descends to the dead, then that means God was descending into the dead, right? Otherwise, yeah. you have some kind of Nestorianism. We don't we don't want that. No, 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 no. Right? no, no. Um, uh, so uh, so you know, I when you when you use a phrase like separated from the Father. Mm-hmm. I don't know what kind of metaphysical baggage you're packing into that phrase. You see, yeah. so so I I can't answer it yes or no without without you defining the meaning of your terms. Mm. But in terms of he wasn't separated from his own divinity that that is certain, right. and he didn't he did not descend to the hell of the damned. That's another thing that the church teaches. He he ascended to the limbus of the fathers. Um, but I mean, I know the Orthodox are very keen on the harrowing is of hell uh, as uh, as their primary model of redemption, and that's shot through the liturgy of Saint John Chrysostom. And mm-hmm. like, we're into all that, right? Yes, do that. We're we're in favor. You know, there are lots of models of the atonement, and how it functions, and Christ's victory over death and hell and the devil are every bit as much a part of the Catholic tradition as they are of the Orthodox tradition. And it's not the only model of the atonement. We also talk about Christ's death as a satisfaction, which is also biblical language. Mm-hmm. Um, and there are others as well. But uh, but we also affirm those teachings that are common to the Orthodox and Catholic faith. Luke, thanks so much uh, for your email. We're doing a special mailbag edition of Call to Communion here on EWTN on this uh, Friday. Don't forget, uh, this is the first Friday of Lent, and that means no meat. So uh, you know what to do, right? Well, shucks, that's just going to be a real struggle for me, Tom. <laughs> oh, sure. <laughs> Lentil man. Yes, Lentil exactly. man over here. Yeah, some some penance, right? <laughs> okay, here's one now from uh, Nora, who is uh, chi- uh, checking in from Middletown, Maryland. Good day, Dr. Andrews. As to my question, my husband is a lukewarm Protestant who attends Mass with us every week. It's important to him that we go as a family, so he has been a great support for us going every week. I believe God is doing interesting things with him. He came to me with a difficult question. Here it is. We live on this earth for 60, 70, 80, God willing, 90 years. During that time, our place in eternity is decided. Those that walk away from God are condemned to hell. The rest will ultimately end up in heaven. Why wouldn't a merciful God offer another opportunity for salvation after death? In other words, why is our eternity determined based on such a short amount of time? Isn't a merciful God better than that? Thanks, Nora in Maryland. Okay, thanks. I really appreciate the question. So, the question seems to presume that the span of our life is such that a person doesn't really have adequate opportunity to choose God. And that, that seems to be what's implied, and that somehow, um, you know, we would get it right after the fact. And look, when we talk about these mysterious dogmas like heaven and hell, and others as well, whether it be the real presence of Christ in the Eucharist, the Incarnation, like uh-huh. we are, of course, stuttering. We're, we're using baby talk to try to understand grown-up God concepts that, that, like, that transcend our rational capacity. And so, you know, the doctrines of the faith are evocative. Um, they, they can elicit from us a, a powerful spiritual response and affect our moral lives. But it, at some level, they're always going to exceed our rational capacity to grasp them. And that's true of heaven and hell as well. I mean, so we're, you know, we're talking about what Paul says, eye hasn't seen and ear hasn't heard, and it hasn't entered into the heart of man. So, you know, we're doing our best with mysteries. Um, but uh, one thing the Catholic faith does teach 
is that the experience of heaven and hell begins in this life. Grace is, is eternal life begun. It's the seed of eternal life begun. So what we have in eternity is not something radically discontinuous with what we have here. The, 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 the soul's conformity to, the God in, to God in grace is the reality that's perfected in the next life. And the alienation of the soul from God in hell is something that is experienced now. So humorously, there's a Catholic priest named Emmerich, Father Emmerich Vogt. He's a Dominican of the Western province. I heard uh-huh. him say one time, religion is for people who don't want to go to hell, and spirituality is for people who've already been there. <laughs> right? And there's <laughs> a lot great. of truth in that. That's a great statement. It right? is. And what he means by that is that you know people will engage in religious ritual because they, they want to use it as a kind of talisman to ward off the threat of eternity. Mm. But spirituality is the attempt to actually get in and remold my character, my, my, my mentality, my state of consciousness, my being in the world, because there's something deeply unsatisfying about the way I exist, and I'm trying to I'm trying to heal those wounds and resolve those inner conflicts, and the spiritual path is a way to doing that. And, of course, spirituality, that conception of spirituality, just is what all Catholics ought to be about. We're about healing the wounds of spirit that, say, Paul talks about in Romans chapter 7, that we're not at war with ourselves and with our flesh and our members. And um, and so, you know, if uh, that, that problem is top of mind for everybody. Mm. You know, all of us are already conscious to ourselves. We're available to ourselves to introspect. Uh-huh. And and we have to make a choice every single day of our lives about how we're going to relate to those kind of temptations and those struggles and whether we're going to yearn and tend towards the good, the true, and the beautiful. And the more we do, the more habitual that leaning in becomes. And if we don't, the more habitual that leaning away becomes. Uh, but the possibility of, of a turn, of a change, of a conversion is there all along, all along. You know, why, why would you think that someone who had really become habituated to hating God and hating the idea of reconciliation with God um, and and has sort of accelerated in that process all the way to the end, you know, why would they why would they need another? I mean, like they've been making that choice every day of their life. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Nora, thanks so much uh, for your email. It's called a communion here on EWTN. Interesting question here from Christopher. This pops up from time to time. Why do we need a priesthood? Why can't there just be a priesthood of all believers with no hierarchy? Um, yeah, exactly. I appreciate the question. So, <clears throat> first of all, when we talk about why does such and such a thing in the plan of redemption have to be a certain way, uh-huh. well, it doesn't. Like, whatever it is you're asking, like, of course God could have done it a different way. You know, God could have said, you know, the first person that wins at Pinochle gets in, right? I mean, he could have done it anyway, right? Yeah. But this is a fitting way. So we're not talking about absolute necessity. We're talking about fittingness. So one of the things about the work of redemption is that we are saved, we're reconciled to God in, through, and by our reconciliation to one another, right? The, the, yeah. the Christian life is, is by definition a collectivity, our experience of Christ is through the collective. The church is the body of Christ. If you want to be connected to Christ, you, you are connected to his body, which is the church. And that's not some arbitrary stipulation. It's because, you know, God is a spirit. He has no tangible form. And so the way we know God is not directly the way like you would know an object. We know God by way of participation. When, when you know, it's like when you you strike a chord or you strike a string on a guitar and 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 you bring another string nearby and it begins to resonate in, in the same frequency like uh-huh. that we we pick up 
God that way, right? Or, you know, the fathers used to talk about iron heated in a fire and beginning to resemble the, the white-hot heat of the furnace. That, that's the kind of way in which we know God. It's a participatory kind of knowledge. Mm-hmm. Well, what is, what is that resonance? What is that divine song that's being sung? Well, the, the character of God is love. And so, you know, I can't love God as an object the way I might love a beautiful painting or an apple or even my wife. I, I know God in the act of loving. You see? Yes. I mean, I'm, I'm loving God insofar as I'm participating in the act of love, and that has, that's sort of got universal scope. I'm loving everyone. Mm-hmm. And the church is there as that, as that collective, that body, that society in which that life of love is mutually reinforcing. And we come to know God better by coming to know and care for one another more. And the health of a body depends upon a principle of order and organization. I mean, imagine if I, if, I, if I took your body and I separated all of the organs and all of the blood vessels, uh, you know, and all of the bones, and I sort of laid them all out on a table. And I said, voila, a human body. <laughs> no, 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 the pieces of a human body. But they have to be arranged in some kind of hierarchical fashion sure. in order to function coherently as a body. And so the, the church needs that. The church needs hierarchy in the sense that every, every, every body, whether in body in the metaphorical sense or body in the physical sense, needs some principle of hierarchic organization in order to function as such. And uh, the hierarchy is there for the good of the body, um, not for its own good. Cardinal Newman once said quite humorously, the church would look silly without the laity. Sure would. You know, the, the, the hierarchy exists as a, in service to the laity, mm-hmm. right, to sanctify them, to bring them to God. And the sacraments, of course, are the tangible point of unity that bring us together as the body of Christ. And when you don't have that hierarchical authority, here's what happens. What happens is you stop having a body. Yeah. What you have is you have 50,000 bodies. Mm. And they're not in unity. Yeah. And there you go. Uh, Christopher, thanks so much uh, for your email. Here's a question now. This is from Bob. I can guarantee we have never answered this question before. He says, good afternoon. Love your show. I like to listen on Spirit Radio 88.3. Here's my question. Do we have any kind of indication the time frame for the 10 plagues of Egypt? I'm assuming it was over a very long length of time, like maybe 10 or 15 years. What say you? I have never given that question any thought, and therefore I have never researched it. (laughs) So I feel that it's highly probable that some authority somewhere has answered that question, but it hasn't been me. And so I don't know. (laughs) I just don't, I haven't, like I said, I've never given it a second's thought, but I'm I'm sure if you dug into the commentaries... Uh, you would uh, you would find some opinions on the matter, but I just haven't done that work. Pretty fascinating, though. Here's one now from Alice. Whenever I pray, my wa- my mind wanders. How can I eliminate or lessen distraction during my prayer? And are there any prayers or practices you would recommend? Yeah, thanks. I appreciate the question. So first of all, go easy on yourself. Uh, yes. Distracted prayer is still prayer, and it's still efficacious, and it's still meritorious. So yeah, don't don't. Uh, don't get yourself all bent out of shape about that. That's okay. Some people's minds just, you know, work a thousand miles an hour like that. Um, you could, um, you could, you could dedicate your distraction to God. You yeah. know, you make an offering of your distraction, right? Play, you sort of play a game on yourself in that way. Yeah. And you say, well, this is a cross I have to bear, and I'm supposed to bear all crosses for the love of God, and so I offer this cross of distracted mind to Jesus, and ha ha, take that distraction. Yeah. You know? um, and uh, uh, but. 
in terms of if if not being distracted is your goal have you thought about the liturgy of the hours because then you're 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 really sticking to a text yes all right that's one thing you might think about think about that alice thanks so much uh, for your email we've got lots more coming up in the second half of our program on this special mailbag edition of call to communion with dr david anders here on ewtn do stay with us It's called a communion here on EWTN on this Friday afternoon of Lent. Uh, we'll not be taking your phone calls today because we're doing a special mailbag edition of our program. Earlier in the hour, David, we took a couple of questions regarding uh, the Anglican faith. And uh, here's one more to make it a uh, trio here. This is from Jane. She says, a while back, I heard you say that Anglicans don't have apostolic succession. Why not? Yeah, thank you. Appreciate the question. The reason they don't is that during the reign of of um, King Edward, who was the successor to, to Henry VIII, uh-huh. the Anglican Church changed its right of ordination, fundamentally altered the right of ordination, and uh, adopted a Calvinistic idea of ordination, namely that they were not being ordained to a sacrificial office. And that is of the essence of the Catholic doctrine of ordination, mm. that the priest is primarily being ordained to a sacrificial office, to, uh, to offer the sacrifice of the Mass to God in reparation for the sins of the world. And that's directly repudiated by the Calvinist tradition and was repudiated by the Catholic understanding, of, I mean, the Anglican understanding of the liturgy. And so um, at the time, there was an investigation by the Holy See in, in, uh, in the 16th century of, as to whether or not the Anglicans had vitiated their orders. And I, I should add, it, it had nothing to do with the fact that Henry VIII went into schism. The fact that he broke away in his obedience to the Pope wasn't, wasn't at issue. And, uh, you know, there can be schismatic groups that are not in communion with Rome that continue yeah. to have valid orders. It was not Henry VIII's schism. It was specifically the change to the right of ordination during the reign of his son Edward. Now, um, in, the, in the 19th century... There were some adjustments in Catholic in, in, in Anglican thinking and in Anglican practices and the way they reckoned their own history and so forth. And the question was revisited as to whether or not Anglicans could possibly have or maybe, maybe had in the interim acquired valid apostolic orders. And again, the Holy See um, underwent an investigation. Uh-huh. And the result of that investigation was an encyclical by Leo XIII called, called Apostolicae Curae in which he concluded uh, definitively that ap- that Anglican orders are, are null and void. They have no valid orders. And in the, I believe it was the 1980s, the Holy See, uh, through the Congregation of the Doctrine of the Faith, uh, issued an opinion, Cardinal Ratzinger wrote it, about whether the teaching of Apostolicae Curae was infallible teaching. And the conclusion of the CDF, again penned by Cardinal Ratzinger, who mm-hmm. went on to become Pope Benedict XVI, was that it is infallible teaching. It's infallible teaching. Okay. And so, um, ain't got no valid orders. Well, there it is. And uh, Jane, thanks so much for your email. We have a, a rather long email here from Catherine. We can only do these long emails on a uh, mailbag program like today, and we're glad to do that today. This, uh, this one from Catherine says, Hello, Tom and Dr. Anders. Thank you for all your work on this program. It sparks a lot of great conversation for my husband and me. I am Catholic. My husband is a Christian who was raised Southern Baptist. He's very supportive of my faith, 
attends Mass with me and our three children, and considers himself almost Catholic. All of his family is Baptist, and they have been very accepting of me, but have made comments about my faith over the years, especially since we've had kids. It's very clear to me that their beliefs about Catholicism come from a lack of understanding of exactly what Catholicism is. Lately, as my kids are getting a little older, there have been several comments about my kids and my own infant baptisms, and that we need to be saved. One family, one family member is a bit aggressive. Most of them just seem confused and concerned. I fully believe this comes from a place of fear for our souls. I know they just want us to know and love God, and that they don't understand that my husband and I are teaching our children about him. How do we respond to concerns from my in-laws that I or my children are, quote, not saved in a way that maintains a warm relationship, but is also firm and holds the boundary that we will not be baptized again? Thank you so much for your time. I look forward to hearing your thoughts. Catherine. Yeah, thanks, Catherine. I appreciate the question. So you have you have two problems here. One of them is how to how to express your Catholic identity to your Baptist relatives. Uh-huh. And the other one is how to do it in a way that maintains all the warmth and, and, and goodwill between the parties. And in my judgment, those two are often at in conflict with one another. And I would privilege the second over the first. So I would tolerate, I personally, I would be content to live with Baptist misunderstanding and, and underappreciation of my Catholic faith mm-hmm. and, uh, and, and be quicker to keep my mouth shut uh, <laughs> and, uh, in order to just be a really good person towards them, maintain good relations, be very affirming, uh, you know, live a virtuous life, be exemplary in your behavior— so that, uh, you know, they might have the attitude, well, that, you know, that Catherine is just a darn good woman. Too bad she's going to hell. <laughs> you know, I mean, like, seriously, oh, seriously. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I would, I would much rather have that attitude than, uh, than to provoke them into all kinds of polemical debate. Because the, the odds that you're going to bring them to see the world from your point of view are very low. Mm-hmm. And so the risk that you have is the more you... Um, sort of polemically defend the Catholic position, it's only going to make rise to the forefront of their minds just how lost Catherine is. Like, the more you emphatically state the Catholic opposition to the Baptist position, the likeliest outcome is, man, I knew she was lost as a goose, but I didn't know she was that lost. (laughs) You know, because when you begin to say, hey, look, you know, as Catholics, I do think that infant baptism can regenerate a soul. I mean, I, I know, I believe it does, and like, it always, it necessarily regenerates the soul. I don't think I need to consciously invite Jesus to come live in my heart in order to be saved. I certainly don't think that I'm saved by faith alone, right? You start saying that stuff out loud to them, and, uh, and it's going to terrify them, because right now they are ignorant, and informing mm-hmm. them may just deepen their fear. Mm-hmm. Okay? Now, the exception is when they come to you and say, we want to know what you think. Tell us what you really think. Then you have an opening yes. and maybe an open mind. And then you can begin to say, well, here's why we think what we think. Here's mm-hmm. how we believe. Here's why we think the way we think. Here are some reasons, you know, here's some Catholic radio stations to listen to. Here's a program that yeah. answers some of these questions. You know, Then you've got an opening. But until you have that opening, I mean, I had a relative, he's not Baptist, he was a Presbyterian relative, who was mad as a snake at me for becoming Catholic, wouldn't talk to me about that for about seven years. 
And I, so I kept my mouth shut. When he was ready, he began to ask me genuine, open-ended, open-minded questions, and that guy's Catholic today. Well, you know, and, and that's, that's fantastic. I'm, I'm thinking that uh, those opportunities sometimes never present themselves. And so all you, can, they never present themselves. all you can do is live that good Christian life and try to be an exemplar. That's right. There you go. Catherine, thanks so much for your very thoughtful letter. We hope that is helpful for you. Call to communion on this Friday afternoon here on EWTN. Not taking your calls today as we're going through the mailbag. Mailbag was getting a little full, so we need to uh, empty it out a little bit. Here's one from Sue in Michigan. Dr. Andrews, could you please explain why seeking out a medium is wrong and possibly dangerous? My friend wants to seek one out. My friend is a non-practicing Catholic. Thanks, Sue from Michigan. Okay, thanks. So, you know, uh, even before we get to the Catholic teaching on this question, Mm -hmm. let's just look at it from a rational, even a secular point of view, okay? When I was in high school, and I was not practicing the Christian faith with any kind of devotion. Uh-huh. I had some friends in my school. Um, they were all girls, by the way. They were all female, who really got into the Ouija board. Oh and my. it was, you know, allegedly telling them stuff. Mm-hmm. And they wanted me to come participate, and I had no interest. And I remember I, I kind of pulled one of them aside, and I said, I got a question for you. She said, what's that? I said, if you are walking in downtown Birmingham, you know, kind of rough neighborhood one night, and uh, you go past this dark alley... And a voice comes out of the alley. You don't see anybody attached to it. It's just a voice. And it says, mm-hmm. you know, hey, little girl, come over here. I have something I want to show you. Would you go down the alley? She says, well, you know, absolutely not. That'd be insane. And I said, but when the same voice emanates out of a board, <laughs> you somehow think it's intrinsically trustworthy. Like, that doesn't make walking around sense. Nope. Like, you have no reason regardless of what the reality is metaphysically, to rely upon anything that comes, you know, by way of a disembodied voice, you know, out of a cardboard parlor game. Like, there's no rational reason to do that. There's no reason to presume that any such voice would be either intelligent or benevolent, you know, at at, at the best. So, um, and then the, the record of relying on such a vice is abysmal. Right. How many Nobel Prize winning scientists <laughs> do you know that have come to their life changing discoveries by consulting dead people? Zero. Yeah. Zero. You know, how many brilliant Supreme Court justices who have positively affected the course of American jurisprudence for, for you know, centuries or decades mm-hmm. came to their articulate answers to thorny moral dilemmas by relying on mediums and spiritists and dead people. Yeah. Zero. Yeah. Et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, mm-hmm. et cetera. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and when you do find people that claim to have produced some body of literature or work or inspiration under the influence of such infernal spirits, it's usually the most manifest nonsense you have ever seen in your life. Right. So there's just just from a rational point of view, there's just no good reason to do this. Mm-hmm. Right? Now, um, the uh, the Catholic position is, however, uh, moreover, I should say that um, uh, that these are very likely not dead people you're talking to. But if you're talking to anybody other than your own imagination, then it's most likely to be infernal spirits yeah. who have nothing but your harm in view. And from a spiritual point of view, 
it, it is exactly the opposite of the disposition of Christian prayer. Because the disposition of Christian prayer is, not my will but thine be done. Mm-hmm. And the disposition of the magician is, only my will be done and no one else's. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. And as you were saying this, and, and the, the question comes up, why would somebody engage in this? And of all things, I'm thinking about the great Ray Charles, who wrote a song back in the 50s called Just for a Thrill. There and you I go. Think, I think sometimes we do things just for a thrill, but this is something to not do. You know, I, back in the day, I, I used to spend a lot of time in the stock market and speculating, and I was, you know, kind of studying trading and this uh-huh. kind of business. And I read a lot of books about successful investors and traders, and uh, the series of books by Jack Schwager called The Market Wizards and Stock Market Wizards. I read all those books and many mm-hmm. others. And I remember uh, a story about a particular uh, hedge fund manager, and he had uh, he had dreamed the the course of the market the next day, whatever, I can't remember if he traded bonds or stocks or whatever, uh-huh. I don't remember what he traded, but whatever he was trading, he was so in tune, he had such a good intuition about all the market forces that were at play, that in his dream, you know, the market opened at this price, and then it dropped to, to this kind of support level, and then it, you know, churned around a little bit, and then it rallied up to here, and then it closed out the day there. And he goes in the next day, and it, it, the market opens exactly where he dreamed, and it drops to exactly where he thought it would drop to. And it rallied exactly to where he thought it would rally to. And it closed exactly where he thought it would wow. close. And Schwager, who's interviewing him, says, well, you know, so did you trade the pattern? Like, you perfectly anticipated it. Did you trade it? And he said, absolutely not. I didn't place a single trade. The day I start relying on dreams and visions <laughs> to conduct my investment business yeah. you know, is the day I'm out of business. Absolutely. <laughs> wow. What a great story. And uh, it's called Communion here on EWTN. You may want to check out EWTN's Podcast Central, which features not only uh, the wonderful programs that we put on the radio every day, but also those from uh, uh, partners of ours coast to coast. One of those is The Catholic Gentleman, featuring Sam Guzman and John Heinen, some of their recent shows, Four Enemies Destroying Your Spiritual Life, and The Best Action Plan for Lent. Very timely there. So go to EWTN.com, click on radio. Once you're on the radio homepage, look for the words Podcast Central, and you'll see great uh, great podcasts like The Catholic Gentleman and so many others. Do check that out. Here's an email now from Ryan on this special mailbag edition of Call to Communion. Ryan says, when defending the Catholic Church against a person who is using scandalous clergy and laity in order to reject Catholicism, what is the best comparison to make? Um, yeah, thanks. I appreciate the question. Well, let me give you, I think, the best response, and then we can talk about comparisons okay. later. Um, the best response, I think, is that the Catholic faith has always taught, I mean, really mm-hmm. as a dogma, uh-huh. that the leaders of the Catholic faith are corrupt. Like, I'm, I am bound by the ascent of faith, by divine and supernatural faith, to hold— that I am governed by a bunch of nimcompoops who are who are awash in original sin. <laughs> wow. And guess what? I'm one of them. Well, right? Yes. I'm right in there. You know, I've, I am as much a participant in the nincompoopery, right? Me I'm, too. I'm also, I am also wounded by original sin and have all those 
uh, all those uh, those wounds of spirit that lead me to do manifestly stupid and self-destructive yeah. things, right? So dogma of original sin, the wounds of sin, concupiscence, pride, all the rest of it, uh, that's the human condition, and I am bound uh, by divine authority to believe that I'm governed by men like me, right? Yeah. And the company of the apostles was was very corrupt. So, you know, the head of the whole thing denied Christ and offended, profoundly scandalized the Gentiles. Bad stuff, right? Yeah. The next two guys in line, James and John, were a bunch of blowhards. Jesus called them the sons of thunder. And then, you know, their their response to, you know, to policy dilemmas was to call down fire and brimstone on their enemies. Not a very good attitude. No. All right? Um, then there's old Thomas, you know, who's, uh, who's come down to posterity. The most well-known thing about Thomas was he was a doubter. And then there's old Judas, who sold out the son of uh, the treasurer of the of the group, who was both a thief and, of course, a, a traitor who sold out uh, Jesus to death. So, mm-hmm. so uh, you got you got five of the twelve that we know of that were regular nimcompoops, and that's just the five we know of. That doesn't mean the other seven were all lily white. Uh, you know, do we have the same ratio of nincompoopery uh, in the in the presbyterate today? I don't know. I mean, you know, that's almost half. Um, so, uh, so that's what we expect. And the motive for becoming Catholic is not that we have perfectly wise, lily-white, pristine, morally pure clergy, but because, of course, the Church is not just the clergy. The Church is the people of God. And that the collective uh, has within it the means of grace to come to sanctification. And so uh, that can happen. You look at the great saints, there's not a one of them that came to holiness in some great time of moral perfection and purity in the church. They all were grow- They all were raised up in times of, of, of deep controversy and intrigue and, and scandal and the rest of it, and their attitude was that, to that was, well, you know, God will take care of that. i got to worry about my own soul. And then they found other like-minded people, and they came to holiness. And that's, that's our call. That's what we have to do. Yes, indeed. Appreciate that. Thanks so much uh, for your email. Call to communion here on EWTN. Here's one now from Anne Marie. Anne Marie says, Dear Dr. Anders, I recently became interested in texts from the Book of Wisdom. I understand there are seven wisdom books and would like to increase my knowledge. I'm particularly interested in the writings of Ben Sirah as well. However, I'm confused and overwhelmed by which commentaries on these writings to consult that are not contrary to Catholic teaching. Some authors I have found seem to be focused on New Age spirituality. Could you please suggest a few? Thanks, Anne-Marie. Um, yeah, thanks. So um, two that come to mind are you could read uh, anything from the Catholic Commentary on Sacred Scripture series, uh-huh. right? Um, you might also look at the Sacra Pagina series edited by Daniel Harrington. Um, but, uh, you know, basically any, any Catholic publisher, um, you know, when you're the general editor of a series is Catholic, I mean, that's a good place to start. And, uh, but, you know, word of caution about commentary. Um, you know, uh, commentators are humans. <clears throat> They're fallible. And, uh, you know, the way that commentary typically works in the modern world is that people rise to that position because of an academic expertise, and often it's a it's a deep knowledge of the history and context and languages of the texts in question, 
And so they'll be raising higher critical questions about authorship and mm-hmm. audience and, and, you know, dating and things like that. And that's all interesting. And I, I like to read that kind of stuff. It informs my knowledge of the Bible. Uh-huh. Um, but uh, you, won't, you won't necessarily walk away with, um, with immediately applicable spiritual content from that. And so uh, to, to do that, you need to read these texts as sacred scripture, read them with the mind of the church, and uh, your knowledge of Christian doctrine, with Christ, of course, at the center, with an eye towards your own formation and virtue, and um, and um, you know, and 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 read them for edification. And then the the classical commentaries of men like Aquinas or Augustine, mm-hmm. fathers of the church, is going to give you more of that spiritual insight into the applicability of the text to your life. And Marie, thanks so much uh, for your question. Here's one now from Mike, dear Dr. Anders. I'm aware that the concept of mental prayer as it is now widely known, was expounded by St. Teresa of Avila. But I still don't understand what it entails. Could you please assist me with what mental prayer is all about, and how can I do it? I'm also asking about this because I read a quote of St. Alphonsus Liguri, who said that, quote, Saints become saints because of mental prayer. It's my great desire to become a saint. Please help me with Mental prayer. Regards, Mike. Yeah, thank you. So the word mental prayer gets defined differently in the tradition. Sometimes mental prayer is contrasted to vocal prayer, uh, and the difference there is vocal prayer is understood to be obviously praying with words, yeah. but typically words composed by somebody else. You know, okay. so like if you pick up the Liturgy of the Hours and you read that, mm-hmm. um, you are you are articulating words written by another person, right? Now, uh, to, and, and mental prayer would be you know, prayer that's interior to you, that's not necessarily verbally articulated. Uh-huh. Now, um, Teresa of Avila goes on to state that that a person can have deep contemplative prayer using vocal prayer. And she says, any prayer worth the name is a prayer that is accompanied by attention. And if you don't have that, you're not really praying, she mm-hmm. says. Yeah. Uh, it doesn't mean you can't have a mind that wanders, but you, at some level you have to be paying attention to what you're doing. And, and that's the essence of the thing. Now, I don't get so bent out of shape on trying to perfect some kind of technique, you know, whether that be vocal prayer or, you know, sometimes mental prayer means kind of conversation with God, more spontaneous interior conversation with God. Mm-hmm. But the, the, don't get so hung up on technique. Teresa herself says that the heart of the matter is purposing to bring your will into alignment with the will of God. And it, it took me a long time of reading Catholic spiritual literature and reading scripture and having the experience of prayer myself to, to really wrap my head around this concept. That I mean, I was raised in a tradition that taught me that prayer is primarily petition and that the purpose of prayer to ask is to ask God for stuff that he then delivers. And it might be good stuff, might be stuff like holiness or virtue or whatnot, yeah. but the, the, the sort of— uh, or it might be, you know, a new automobile or a new girlfriend or an A on my test. But the, the essence of the thing is the petitionary character mm-hmm. of it. And um, I didn't think so much about the primary function of prayer being the effect that praying itself had upon the one praying. Prayer as a medium for uh, transcendence, for personal transformation, mm-hmm. for the transformation of my character. And what I came to appreciate about the Catholic tradition, when I began to study all these different books of prayer, and every saint has a different technique, every saint has a different approach, what they all had in common at the end of the day was this single-minded focus upon holiness. And that, you know, for Ignatius of Loyola, for example, it's all about meditating on Christ's life in the scenes of the Gospels. Um, For Teresa of Avila, it's all about 
considering my own interior, like actually scrutinizing the contents of my interior life and consciousness and thoughts and emotions mm-hmm. to purify them of, you know, attachments and, and uh, impurities and things of that sort. Um, you know, for, uh, for Francis de Sales, it's a little bit of both of those things. Um, but what they all have in common at the end of the day is that I'm trying to change my character. And it's the, the technique that I use, the words that I speak are less important than that end goal. And so my advice to people about spirituality is you don't have to walk Teresa's steps after her point by point. You don't have to do that with John of the Cross or Francis de Sales or any of them. You you need to find the spirituality, borrow from the masters, but you find the spirituality that helps you to live holiness of life. Now, I have known some souls for whom that means Nothing other than a vigorous attachment to the popular devotions of the faith, like the rosary or the brown scapular or whatever it might be. Mm-hmm. Other souls for whom it might mean a kind of deep textual engagement in the fathers of the tradition or the liturgy of the hours or something. For another person, it might be gazing wordlessly upon the blessed sacrament for hours upon end. For someone else, it might be single-minded attention to the duties of their state of life, like their motherhood or their parenthood. And yeah. all of that can be prayer, Right. So, again, the important thing is, Paul describes our way of, our our dilemma in Romans chapter 7, which is the mind at war with itself, the flesh against the spirit, the law of God against the law of my members, Um, oh, wretched man that I am, who can rescue me from this body of death? I mean, that's our fundamental problem in life. Mm -hmm. And, And the goal is what the Father's called apatheia, that is having a dispassionate attitude, not being attached to things, uh, putting to death this war within my members, coming to a kind of peace of mind um, uh, that enables me to to be in the world like Jesus, to love others as myself, to love my enemies, to pray for them, um, you know, to be at peace with God and neighbor. And that's, you find the spirituality that moves you that way. Read a lot of the stuff, and then you pick and choose in a way to, to with that end in view. And there you go. Thank you so much uh, for your question, Mike. And uh, the mailbag is now officially depleted it's not totally empty but it's <laughs> we uh, got so to send us some more emails folks exactly the address for that ctc at ewtn.com ctc at ewtn.com dr david anders have a great weekend tom thank you you too we do this program monday through friday here on ewtn radio at 2 p.m eastern for our live broadcast uh, which will resume on monday i promise Don't forget, you can check out the podcast anytime by going to EWTN.com, click on radio, and then the podcast central they were referring to earlier. I'm Tom Price, along with Dr. David Anders and our producer, Charles Berry. Have a wonderful weekend. We'll see you Monday. God bless.